0: So our uh, first reading today, our New Testament reading, comes from Hebrews chapter 4. I'll read verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Our next uh, reading comes from First Peter. This is chapter 3, and I'm reading verses 8 and 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but only contrary. Bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And our sermon text today is actually Psalm thirty-four. So we're going to do another look at another Psalm. And saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, oh children, listen to me. With a righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So we are uh, continuing our study of the Psalms. And uh, I'm going to make the assertion that no book of the Old Testament is more influential to the thought of the New Testament than the Psalms. That's why it's the most quoted verse or book in the New Testament. Yet, the problem with the Psalms is they're not a place in the Bible that we devote a lot of serious attention to. Uh, we see the Psalms mostly as a few pretty words. that might provide some inspiration for, uh, for a hymn, but rarely more than that. But I think that the Psalms are much more than that. I think they're important because they can deepen our relationship with God, with creation, and with our community. They can allow us to experience our lives in a richer and more fully way. And that's what I want to try to bring across in these sermons. Because I think the problem with this is that the Psalms are poetry. And poetry is like really hard. We probably all still have uh, uh, nightmares about uh, high school uh, learning uh, poetry in high school. Because it's weird. Uh, Poetry, uh, you know, resists. Uh, You know, particularly for us, I think, as American Christians, uh, you know, we like things like propositions. We like things like doctrines. And poetry resists that. It's not three bullet points in an application. And so that's why sermons usually aren't uh, taught from the Psalms. Uh, We don't even really figure out Psalms, right? Uh, Understanding them is always just a bit beyond our grasp. Uh, But that's what a good poem does. Uh, The nature of a psalm, the nature of poetry is it's meant to challenge us, it's meant to engage us, it's meant to force us to return to it over and over again and be moved by it, to feel it, and even sometimes even to be angered by it. Uh, That's what any great work of art does though. And, you know, once we've encountered the Psalms, once we've looked at them and treated them seriously, uh, I think we we enter a world that we simply don't walk away from. Uh, If we do that, if we we do, we haven't really understood it. It's supposed to be something that we think about again and again. We're supposed to uh, let it influence us, to let it shape us. And in that way, uh, the Psalms can almost be a little bit like playing with fire. They're dangerous uh, because they can't be controlled. They make us uncomfortable. And at the same time though, that's what enlivens us and transforms us. So I, I think it's very powerful. It's very important for us, you know, if we want to have this, like, vibrant faith like I mean, how many of us say, you know, uh, Lucia does this every Wednesday, right? She, she, like, makes it a point to pray for the church. And it's really great because she, always, she usually sends this email that's got, like, a psalm with it. And it's, like, really great, you know, to just stop in the middle of the week and I, I love this part about it you know not only that she prays which is like really important and, uh, but also that like we get to stop and just like think about something different in the middle of the week and so that's what the psalms are supposed to do if we let them Uh, So the point of this sermon is to help us to be better readers of the Psalms. What I'm trying to do is kind of give us some tips, some organizations to to understand them. Because like I said, I don't want this to be a repeat of high school poetry class, right? Uh, We need to love them. Um, And so one of the ways that... That, uh, one of the tricks that I've kind of given us to kind of understand them is by dividing them up into these three categories uh, that, uh, that I got from Walter Brueggemann, who's a famous Old Testament scholar. So he talks about Psalms of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And I, I think that's cool because it kind of follows the patterns of our own life. You know, there are sometimes in our lives we've experienced a time of commitment. Contentment. I mean, uh, when we've been enamored by the grace of life, you know, we've had this mountaintop experience when we've seen the beauty of the world. And there are psalms for that. But we've also experienced the opposite of that because we know that life can be messy. It can be hard. It can be ugly. It can be tragic because we live in a broken world. Uh, we become disoriented. And there are psalms for that. Um, however, there's also times uh, that after we have passed through the challenges of life, the difficulties of life, that we've come away and we've seen life anew. We've developed a wisdom. Uh, we've grown. Our lives are not the same after those experiences. We have a new perspective of life, and those are times of reorientation. And so the Psalms follow these patterns. Uh, that's what makes them uh, great. And so today, what I want us to do is look at a psalm of reorientation. So I'm calling Psalms 34, the one we read, a psalm of reorientation. Uh, you can also classify it as the psalm of Thanksgiving. You heard those themes, as I read, uh, of thankfulness. Specifically, uh, the psalmist here is thankful for deliverance from his enemies. Uh, and so, you know, that's the big picture of this. But there's a few things that I want you to know about this psalm. A, little, a few more technical facts that maybe doesn't come across when you read it, right? Um, but it's important to, under, to help us understand. Now, the first important fact you need to know is that this psalm is written as an acrostic. Okay. So so each verse begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first verse begins with aleph, the second verse with bet, the third with gimel and so on. Now, why does it do that? Well, it's an important signal, okay, to to the people who read this, you know, you're not supposed to know the Hebrew alphabet, but you know, the people who originally read this did. But it would signal to them that this is not a this is not spontaneous. This is not a spontaneous outburst of Thanksgiving. Rather, this psalm is the result of someone who has looked back on his life with considerable contemplation and reflection, and put some thought into what he is delivering in the psalm. Okay, so so this psalm is a work of thoughtfulness. Um, an acrostic would signal to its hearer that it was comprehensive, okay? Like, you know, it covers all the bases from, you know, we would say A to Z, right? Uh, it, it, from top to bottom. And all of this care has been put into this psalm. Now, second, this psalm was meant to serve as instruction. Uh, several lines of the psalm, all, psalms are addressed to, uh, you know, the holy ones or the son the sons. And these are phrases that we find in wisdom literature when a student is being instructed by a master. So the point here is what the psalmist wants us to do is to take his experiences that he's learned from his life and to teach us something about Thanksgiving. Okay. So, I mean, that's nice, right? You know, okay. It sounds good, right? Thanksgiving, good. You know, it's, Thanksgiving, that's something sufficiently churchy that we should talk about, right? Um, but you know, Psalm gets a little more interesting. Okay, now of the 150 Psalms, there's 150 Psalms in the Bible and are in the Book of Psalms. 116 of them begin with a superscription. Okay, now sometimes these superscriptions are something really easy. A lot of times they tell us who wrote the song, like they'll say of David or of the sons of Korah or of Moses or, A- or Asaph or something like that. So those are different people who wrote the Psalms we have. And sometimes they say something like, to the choir master or to the leader. Uh, sometimes they use old musical terminology, right? Because they were compositions that were most likely set to music or sung. Now, we don't know when these superscriptions were added specifically. Uh, we do know they're very old. And they may have originally been part of these psalms. Uh, it's debated. Uh, but what we do know is that our oldest manuscripts have these. Um, now, most of the time we don't pay any attention to these superscriptions. Today, though, we need to pay attention to the superscription here. Because if we really look at the superscription for Psalms 34, I'm going to read it from my, my uh, Bible. It says, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and went away. Now, that is probably the most boring translation possible for this superscription. Has anybody got a Bible that has something more interesting? Yes, what does you say, Allie? When he, pretended to be insane. when he pretended to be insane. So it doesn't say, like, oh, look, when he changed his behavior before it'd been like, no. It, Ali's translation is much better. When he pretended to be insane. Now, that's kind of interesting, right? That gets your attention a little bit more. All right, now when we read this psalm, let's start to think about that. So, so you know, the point of the superscription is the psalm wants us to know that this psalm is a result of David uh, reflecting on a particular time in his life. And it's placed in the front of this psalm so that we can read this psalm in the context of that time in David's life. Which is, which is chronicled at the end of 1 Samuel. Now we're going to talk a little bit about what this insanity thing is. But, you know, why is it important that we read this psalm in the context of what was going on with, uh, with David? Okay, so I can best illustrate this point by talking about Tennessee whiskey. Okay, That's the best way I can illustrate this point. So, specifically the song Tennessee Whiskey. Does anybody know this song? Anybody know what I'm talking about when I say the song Tennessee Whiskey? Okay, yeah. So Tennessee Whiskey is a song that has become famous uh, a few years ago uh, by a guy named Chris Stapleton, okay? He's a country singer. And it's basically, the, the, the song is kind of a familiar trope in country music about a guy who gives up his hard living and drinking ways because of the love of a good woman. Standard stuff. And Chris Stapleton has like this amazing voice. I mean, if you've heard this guy, I mean, it is beautiful. Uh, but I think it's really tedious and boring. Uh, and I have expressed this opinion to people who absolutely love this song. And, you know, this like, if you were a fan of Chris Stapleton and someone says that it's genius and boring, like, like people get mad. Like people have wanted to fight me when I've said this because he has like kind of this like devotion to it. Because like I said, his voice is like amazing. Right. And if you hear this, it is beautiful. But why do I think this? Um, Despite the fact that he's technically perfect, um, it's because I know this song originally from a different person. Okay, and if you're a country music fan, you don't have to be a country music fan to understand this analogy, but uh, George Jones, okay? So George Jones sung this song back in 83. That's what I know. And here's the thing about it. Chris Stapleton uh, went to Vanderbilt on an engineering scholarship, okay? George Jones, well, let's just say, if you know anything about George Jones, he lived a long, tragic, and sad life And let us just say that George Jones experienced many, many low points in his life. Uh, There are some really interesting stories about him, most of which are sad. But when George Jones sings Tennessee Whiskey, and he talks about being redeemed by the love of a good woman from a hard life, you believe it. Okay? It may not be as technically perfect as Chris Stapleton, but you believe it. And I think that's the same idea that's going behind the Psalms here. This is not just some guy telling you that God is awesome, so you should be thankful. No, this is a person who has lived a life where he has suffered real hardship and tragedy, and so he's worth paying attention to because the wisdom he's dispensing is not just good advice. It comes from hard-won experience. Now, most of us know about David and King David from back in Sunday school class, right? Um, yeah, but you know, you're know you probably not familiar with the story about David pretending to be insane. Okay? So here it goes. Let me tell you the story. So this is the background of this song. Okay, so Saul is the king of Israel. Uh, but Saul's doing like a really bad job of it. And so God tells Samuel, the high priest, uh, I want you to anoint a new king because uh, Saul's terrible. And it turns out to be this shepherd boy from Bethlehem that we all know, uh, David. Now here's the problem, though. Saul, and more importantly, the people around him who depend on Saul for their powerful positions, don't really accept this David guy. And so uh, David is forced to go into hiding with his uh, few but loyal band of followers and escapes uh, to the land of Israel's enemies the Philistines, okay? So, so the Philistines are always like the bad guy in the Old Testament. And so David uh, is on the outs with uh, King Saul, and so he has to uh, flee to the land of uh, their enemies. Now, of course, this is an ideal since the Philistines don't really like David either. But David has no choice. He's a fugitive. So, you know, David in this time is, is hated by both sides. Uh, And he keeps his rebellion uh, against Saul going by really committing all kinds of dubious acts. Uh, And along the way, he lives in caves and forests, the wilderness. And he experiences a pretty hard life, a precarious existence in which he is wanted by both the Israelites or the Philistines. And has all kinds of interesting adventures along the way. So that's what happens at the end of 1 Samuel. Uh, Eventually, Saul is killed in battle by the Philistines, and then David becomes king. But for a long time, David is not doing so well. He has this uh, really crazy but interesting life. And so it's this time in David's life that Psalm 34 is referring to. Now, at one point, David flees. This is when he's in the Philistines, and he goes to a city in Philistia called Gath. Okay, so Gath is important. And if you know anything about uh, the Old Testament, Gath is important because that's where Goliath is from, right? So we all know David and Goliath, right? So Goliath was their big hero, uh, literally. And uh, David has killed him. And he's also killed a lot of other Philistines. So he's got this reputation as a guy who kills Philistines. And here he is in Gath, Goliath's hometown. And this does not endear David too well to the king of Gath. And so David's kind of in a tight spot. He's trapped in gath. He has no resources. Uh, He can't possibly get out of this by force. And so David chooses the only course available to him uh, to escape. Uh, He uh, pretends to be insane. Okay? And specifically, we are told he does this by uh, drooling a lot. Uh, He drools a lot. And he writes things on the doors of the gates. I don't know what that's about. But apparently, it was enough to convince the king of Gath that David was crazy. And the king of Gath says something to the effect of, I have plenty of madmen already, as it is in Gath. I don't need another one. And so they just throw David out unharmed. And so that's the background of the song. Now, the point is that at this time in David's life, David's thinking back, right? And this is a time when David's on the run from Saul and the whole lot of Israel. And he's forced to flee the land of his enemies where he's also hated. And, you know, he has like nothing uh, to do but like act insane. Okay. Um, and so it's these events David's thinking about as he's writing this song. Uh, so, you know, like George Jones, David is a guy who's experienced some things. So if we turn to the Psalms, let's look here uh, in verse 1 through 7. uh, I mean, it's basically the Psalm is divided into three stanzas. And if we look at verses 1 through 7, you know, we read David expressing his thanksgiving for all the ways that God had personally delivered him through this difficult time in his life. And he invites other people to join him in expressing this praise. Now, it's significant, I think, here, uh, the, the descriptions of the people that he invites to join him, right? So in verse 2, he calls um, the humble, okay? The humble. And, you know, it's a churchy word. Uh, you know, we don't really know. Uh, that, it's like one of those words you hear humble, you're like, I don't even know what to think about that. But, you know, it, 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 it can be translated also as like needy, afflicted. Um, I think a good modern word for this might be like depressed. Okay, like the depressed. Uh, in verse 4, uh, David describes himself as afraid. He's fearful. And in verse 6, he uh, is urging the poor man to cry out the Lord. And so what I think is significant here is in this first stanza, it's the audience that uh, David is addressing uh, this uh, wisdom to. He's uh, addressing it to uh, people who are depressed, fearful, and are poor. And so his message is specifically for those who are on the margins of society, the people who lack power, who lack resources. And what David wants them to know is that God hears them. And David knows this, and he knows this because he has been all of these things during his time as a fugitive. And so in response to David, the Lord answers and delivers. Uh, It it tells us, it uses those verbs specifically. He answers, he delivers, he hears, he saves. And in verse seven, we even learn the angel of the Lord camps around the faithful and delivers them. And it's because we know the context of this poem, of this psalm, we know that the actions of the Lord were concrete. This isn't just like abstract stuff that David's talking about. This is real. You know, this isn't like like spiritual deliverance. This is a very real world deliverance that we're talking about. Um, the psalm then moves on to the next stanza, okay? So, so God has delivered uh, me, and he can deliver people uh, like me. And like, you know, the afflicted, the poor, the fearful? Yeah, I know what it's like. Uh, and I have been delivered, you know, I can look back on my life and see these places where God delivered me. So that's the first seven verses. Now, he moves into the next stanza, so the next section of this. Uh, and verse 8, verse 8 has this great line. I mean, you know, you got to like this line here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, it's kind of weird, you know? Uh, but the Hebrew word here, it's like literally means taste, right? And I think it goes again to the concreteness uh, that we are experiencing that we are meant to experience in the psalm. Like I said, this is not theoretical. It's the reason for the superscription. David really has tasted. He's felt uh, what God has done. You're, you know, he's experienced directly. And that experience, you know, should, should help us to, to think through. Like we're using our senses, you know, like our, our real physical bodies. And that should be exciting. Because what it means is that David has learned through his trials that God is not this abstract distant deity right for David the goodness of the Lord is meant to be is meant to be fully engaged it's meant to be experienced to the point where it is familiar to us as something we see and eat and you know I, I feel like I want to stop here I want to belabor this point a little bit because I think it's an important lesson for us to grasp it's also why these psalms are important this is why I'm bringing it up because you know we like talking about God uh, we like learning about God and that's great Uh, We develop, like, doctrinal systems. We talk about the attributes of God. We talk about their implications for philosophy. You know, we use lots of words about, like, omniscience and omnipresence and stuff like that. And none of those things are wrong. It's not wrong. But one thing that it does do is it has a danger of us reducing God to just, like, an object of study. And while we know about God, do we really know God that way, right? Right? I mean, that's what we're trying to get across in the Psalms. What he wants us to do is to taste and see, to really know God, to experience God, not just to know about God. I mean, he's not just telling us some fun facts about God. You know, he wants us to get it. And so he's using this very vivid language of tasting and seeing to challenge us to go beyond. A simple intellectual understanding of God and to actually experience God that's why this psalm has to be written in poetry it can't be written in any other way because these ideas are trying to move us beyond our limited understanding and only the kind of language and image in poetry is purposely designed to move us to a higher world because it knows we can't fully grasp it it understands that that's why the language is so over the top and weird because it's trying to propel us to that that kind of understanding, it knows these thoughts are too big for us to hold in our hand, head to have too much understanding. But at the same time, we experience in these words, and when we think about these words, our lives, uh, we when we experience the divine and its wildness and its mystery, and that enlivens us. It's exactly what we need. That's why we need the psalms. To keep our our, uh, 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 worship from being too uh, overly intellectual. I love the intellectual stuff. It's great. I love sitting around and parsing Hebrew verbs. It's fun to me. But if we're going to have that real kind of life, that's just what we've got to do. We've got to meditate. We've got to be like haunted uh, by these Psalms, you know? Just like uh, we we can think about um, other works of art that do the same thing. Now, going on. The second stanza concludes in verse 14. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. What's that about? I think there's an insight that David is trying to communicate here. And it's not that, it's that, what he's trying to communicate to us is like he's been delivered and he's thankful. But that is not an end to itself. That's not where David, upon reflecting on his life and seeing where God has saved him, he doesn't stop there. Deliverance brings with it a responsibility. So new orientation is not individual or personal. It's meant to be shared. Being poor, being fearful, being afflicted, and the experience that comes with that means that we need to work for a better world. We should work to bring this deliverance to others. And that's why tasting and seeing are such a key component here. Because it is by fully understanding and experiencing God's goodness that we will be energized to enact God's goodness in the world. Now, the last stanza, if we look through that, it centers on this theme of righteousness. Righteousness is the big theme of the last stanza. Four times the Hebrew word for righteousness is used. The eyes of the Lord are to the righteous. The Lord hears the cry of the righteous. The Lord delivers the righteous. Those that hate the righteous are condemned. Now, let me tell you something interesting too about David, okay? So, so again, let's read this all against the, the context of David. That's why the superscription's here. That's what we're meant to do. Let's think about this. So, we, you know, we read righteous, you know, that's another churchy word, like humble, you know? What does it even mean? And, and here's the thing about David. Okay, we, we often, you know, in our Sunday school class, we want to make him a hero. <laughs> but David is not a hero, let me tell you. Uh, you know, during the same time in David's life, he is a fu- when he's a fugitive, right? What we're, we're, we're talking about here. Um, there's a story where he sends his men uh, to basically shake down Uh, this dude named Nabal. So Nabal's like a rich guy that has this big field with all these sheep. I think he has like 3,000 sheep or something like that. And David goes up to him and he goes up to Nabal and he's like, "Uh, Nabal, why don't you uh, see a lot of sheep here? Why don't you give me some food? And Nabal's like, I don't really want to because it's like my sheep. And David's like, well, you know, I got this uh, army here and nothing so far has happened to those sheep and, you know, keep me around, keep me fed. I can kind of keep it that way be ashamed something bad happened to uh everybody here you know and uh you know, basically it's like david acting like a mafia boss like, like <laughs> he's running a protection racket you know and uh Naval refuses david is ticked off and so he goes and he's like i'm gonna get them in i'm just gonna wipe out Nabal and all his stuff okay like i said david not a hero okay uh, he's only stopped at the last minute because Nabal's wife, Abigail, comes up to him and talks about him. Okay? It's the only reason he doesn't do this. Now, this happens. It's interesting because this story of uh, David, like, basically trying to steal this guy's sheep and everything like that comes right after this, like, incredible story of David, who has this amazing opportunity to kill his enemy, Saul, right? So so Saul's currently uh, 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 hunting for David, right? And uh, Saul and his men are just like going around because they heard David was in the area, right? And uh, they stop and there's this cave. And Saul's like, uh, you know... Uh, and David's men are in this cave. David is with his followers and they're hanging out in this cave. Saul just happens to come across it with his army, sees the cave and is like, um, okay, um, you know, I really need to relieve myself. Nature's calling. I'll just go in that cave over there. And uh, yeah, Bible is interesting. Uh, so, So David goes to take a leak in the cave. I mean, Saul goes to take a leak in the cave and David's like, awesome. I can kill this guy right now. I got my sword. He's not paying any attention to what he's doing. And David just is like, no, that's not right. You know? And, uh, he, uh, decides not to to kill Saul that way. And, uh, afterwards Saul, like it's this big thing where Saul admits like, oh, David, you could have killed me right there. Uh, but, uh, you're way more righteous than me. So, you know, my point here is that David's like this really complex figure. It, you know, at times he acts righteously, you know, he doesn't kill a guy, his enemy while he's trying to pee. But at other times not so much, right? And you know, the Bible's really clear. The Bible never tries to make David out to be this hero. Uh David's life ends kind of tragically. He's on the run again. He has to flee his kingdom. Oh, all no, all, he's not really that great a guy. But yet I think that's what makes Psalms 34 more relatable to us because these are the words, these aren't the words of a guy who's a saint. These are the reflections of a guy who has been a good guy at times but he's also been a jerk and yet nevertheless he's experienced the deliverance of God and I like this because guess what I I think that's what I am, right I'm someone who can be a good guy sometimes but I can also be a jerk, right and I think David, yes, you do not have to answer so quick I'm just kidding, he didn't answer um david's a man who knows that if he has any claim of righteousness at all it's because of god's intervention he totally would have waxed nabel if he could and he realizes he's only prevented by abigail's intervention was that was that by coincidence no he sees something greater in that he may have spared Saul, but can he really claim that as his own act of righteousness I think this is a person, David is a person who has looked back at his life and he sees that, that God's been everywhere all along the way. Including the times he's been righteous, including the times that he's been protected from, from doing things that he otherwise would have done that would have been bad. And it's this new orientation that David wants us to understand in the song. David's life isn't just a bunch of things that happened. They were a series of events in which God was there, saving David from others and sometimes from his own self. And so it's no wonder David urges the heroes of the Psalm to taste and see the Lord, because it's only by reflection that we see it. And it's this new orientation that David has come to realize. It's a realization that only comes not simply by hard experience, but by reflecting on that hard experience. As uh, the great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard says, life must be lived forward, but it can only be understood backwards. David is a person who is looking back on his life backwards, and what he sees is God, right? So Psalm 34 is an invitation for us to look back on our own lives. Can we find the places in our lives where the Lord delivered us from others as David was delivered from his enemies? Can we find places in our lives where the Lord delivered us from ourselves? Can we find places where the Lord strengthened us and gave us opportunities to be righteous? As we understand our lives backwards and see the Lord acting in our lives, this practice of reflection should provide us too with a new orientation, a new way of looking at life that finds a life of grace. And finally, my last point, notice that David, because of these experiences, he knows what it's like to be poor. He knows what it's like to be afflicted, to be afraid. And it's this experience that allows David to identify with the outcast. No doubt David was a better king because he knew what it was like to suffer. Yet it is Jesus, the king of Israel, the one greater than David, who exemplifies this journey. Jesus lived the life of an outcast. Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. Like David, he's the true king, but he is on the run from his enemies and the people who should be his friends. So, When we look at our New Testament reading in Hebrews, the author tells us that Jesus is passed into heaven as the new high priest. However, despite being exalted, despite being in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, um, we can uh, come before Jesus. Because like David, Jesus has suffered. Jesus has been sympathetic. Jesus has experienced and knows what it means to be poor, afflicted, and afraid. Therefore, we who are poor, afflicted, and afraid can draw to Jesus with confidence. And find grace. And then Peter also reflects on this psalm. So 1 P- Peter, if you read first Peter, he actually quotes directly from the psalms. And right before quoting it, uh, he uh, makes this point. Here is the point Peter wants us to get. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless plus for to this you were called you see being righteous is not just a list of rules that we follow to somehow demonstrate our moral superiority for peter and for david it's a responsibility that we're called to not for our own benefit but for the benefit of other people that is our task that is what we are called we taste and see god so that we we then identify with others and bring the world of grace to a life uh, a world of grace of life to a world that is broken and suffering to turn our own suffering and bless into a blessing because that's what Christ did taste and see that the lord is good because in that way we can practice resurrection